Welcome to an impromptu edition of the Idle Book Club. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. And we are recording a short podcast to honor the life and work of Umberto Eco, the Italian semiotician and novelist most famous for The Name of the Rose, a uh, 14th century historical, well, a, a 20th century novel set in a 14th century uh, Benedictine abbey um, that sort of smushes together murder mystery and philosophy and all kinds of other things. Uh, he, his first novel was that book, The Name of the Rose, which he followed by six more novels over the following three decades. And uh, he passed away a few days ago, and we just wanted to record this to share some of our thoughts and memories about his work and his, I guess, interviews and <laughs> life and appearances. And our relationship to him. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that Umberto Eco was one of the first authors that, well, I I essentially read, started reading Echo because you had recommended him to me. So he was one of the first authors that we had kind of shared mm-hmm. um, ideas and, and feelings over. And so in, in that way, he has a, a special importance for the two of us yeah. um, specifically. But also I think I, I've just been seeing a lot of online, a lot of outpouring of appreciation, appreciation and respect for Echo from especially writers um oh really interesting mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, yeah so we were just gonna talk a little bit about what we liked about umberto umberto echo's writing and then recommend some of his books the recommendation part's going to be really easy because we're just gonna say <laughs> all of them yeah. there are only seven it's well, pretty i think it's a little more sure nuanced than all of them but, yeah. but we can talk about what exactly it is that we really like about his novels and i um was trying to i was thinking about this a couple of days ago when i found out that he had passed away and the best way that i can sum up what what it is that i like about echo's novels is that he successfully combines these very philosophical digressions into the nature of humanity and man's role in the world and history and all of these very complicated musings. And he manages to put all of that within very engaging and human human stories. So he combines the intelligence with actual heart in a way that I think is incredibly rare. Usually you get one Mm -hmm. or the other out of an author, but echo manages to do both, which is what makes it easy to read a 700 page novel about parallel universes sure, and time or travel a char- character imagining these things. Sure. Yeah. Um, which is what Island of the day before is about. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say that, that he does both of those things, but one of the, th- <laughs> sometimes why his novels can be tougher to get through is because often those things exist in the same novel, but in completely separate sections, mm-hmm. right? I mean, many of his novels will just go just almost a hard stop. And then suddenly you're in the midst of just page after page of Arcana and 
uh, historical sort of uh, Desiradata. You know, I mean, it's 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 really odd. He definitely writes in a way that is not. I think he he is has a sense of of humanity that pervades his work. But on on the sentence to sentence and page to page level, he doesn't necessarily he's not overly concerned with whether the reader can keep up. He expects that the reader will do so, but is not always interested in helping that mm-hmm. to be true. And, and I think that that is there's something about his work that I think can if if you go into it with the right spirit, I think that can be almost magnetic. I mm-hmm. mean, you can you can just tell reading his novels that you're in the presence of an in- an incredible but more to the point an unusual intellect you know i mean his his brain in sort of captured a very strange and obscure cross section of human knowledge and you can really just tell when you're reading the book and then so- is any of his novels really for the most part and and sometimes when you get into one of these digressions or one of these passages of just strange detail and just sort of uh, fractal like investigation into sort of historical secret societies or, or conspiracy theory or what have you, even though you might not be understanding what the hell it is you're reading, there's something, at least to me, I, I get this sense often that I'm reading something totally singular. Like there, there probably isn't another author, uh, certainly of fiction on the planet who is going, who has the ability to sort of corral all of this stuff in front of me in a way that isn't exploitative or uh, sort of dumbed down. Right. I mean, the obvious, speaking of dumbed down, the obvious (laughs) comparison is to Dan Brown, who wrote novels or who writes novels that deal in similar medieval conspiracy theories, but to Foucault's pendulum. Which and, was and second novel, but just r- religious conspiracy and old histories coming mm-hmm. back into the modern era. So there's a there's a great interviewer. Actually, it's sort of a um, recurring answer that that Echo sometimes gives in interviews when people ask him about this obvious comparison between uh, Foucault's Pendulum and uh, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. And I know you love you love his answer. <laughs> I do. About that. What is it? You have that at hand. I do. So the interviewer asks Umberto Eco, and this is this particular interview is in the Paris Review. Uh, the interviewer asks, "Have you read the Da Vinci Code?" Eco, yes, I am guilty of that too. Interviewer, that novel seems like a bizarre little offshoot of Foucault's Pendulum. Eco, the author Dan Brown is a character from Foucault's Pendulum. I invented him. He shares my character's fascinations, the world conspiracy of Rosicrucians, Masons, and Jesuits, the role of the Knights Templar, the hermetic secret, the principle that everything is connected. I suspect Dan Brown might not even exist. <laughs> I just think that's an adorable answer. Oh, yeah. Especially because he, his the way that he sort of suggests uh, at the end there, I suspect Dan Brown might not even exist. That just sounds like, I mean, he, I think, is probably in that answer, winkingly alluding to the kinds of characters from Foucault's Pendulum or the Island of the Day Before, you know, this sort of, like, how just sort of beautifully perfect would it be if in yet another intertextual loop around of the kind that 
inhabit all of his novels, the entire repertoire of Dan Brown were itself a creation of a character in an Umberto Eco novel. You know, it's like that, that, that kind of thing is like just all throughout his work, mm-hmm. you know? So I love the way, I love how he answers that. It's so like ridiculous. And that guy. Well, I also find it really charming because essentially the name, well, Foucault's pendulum is the smarter version of the Da Vinci Code and how um, angels and demons and everything right. that Dan and pred- predates them by about a decade. Right. And, and I know that name of the Rose was pretty successful. And I think Foucault's pendulum was also pretty successful, but nowhere near the international success that the Da Vinci Code has been. And I'm glad that Umberto but couldn't possibly be sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But regardless, the, the point is, is that they both are dealing in these medieval conspiracy theories. And, and one guy got a lot of success off, off of it versus just a not moderate, but respectable amount of success that Umberto Eco did. And I'm mm-hmm. glad that he is mostly just amused by the situation right. and not like upset that, that oh, Dan yeah. Brown did exactly what he did, but mm-hmm. still, you know, less intelligent and was able to be, sure. become an international best-selling author. I mean, so is Umberto Eco, so, yeah, to be on that, fair. On that note, I think it's interesting to talk about very, very briefly, because I don't think either of us have a huge amount to say about this, but it is interesting that Echo, given the obscure nature of pretty much everything he wrote, was an incredibly successful author. You know, I, mean, I wouldn't say incredibly successful. Relative to most authors, he was incredibly successful. He sold ten million, uh, more than 10 million copies of The Name of the Rose, mm. which is extremely rare, mm-hmm. uh, and millions of copies of numerous other novels. Uh, he... I mean, for someone who did not consider himself a novelist, you know, he always said he did I'm, a good job of it. Yeah, he was. And and one of the reasons I think that's particularly notable is because his works, you know, like I said, are so frequently um, happy to just plod along at their own pace, delving in and out of of crazy, just historical and philosophical um, digression with with relatively little concern for whether the reader can keep up and it is it is fascinating that he's managed to that he managed to build up such an audience despite that and despite the fact that he never really was met with universal critical acclaim um probably because his books are are so strange in that regard it really speaks to his talent as a writer that well and i think also the singularity of what he was writing about yes. you know mm-hmm. there's not that much else out there if you if you like this stuff it's hard to find good examples of it. I wonder if people identify in his writing that it lacks any kind of artifice because he is not concerned with being a writer necessarily or a writer of fiction. You read his books and it it doesn't feel like there is... You can't see the author behind the writing, like desperately thinking like, oh, what what am I going to do that mm-hmm. that is going to make people excited? Um, that's something that you can sometimes feel in modern fiction, oh, um, sure. modern yeah. literary fiction of, of writers who are definitely trying to be yeah, like writers with a capital W. And, yeah. Right. And, and I wonder if maybe people, when they're reading Echo's work, um, works 
which are incredibly intelligent and very beautifully written, but it's possible that because he just, not that he doesn't care, but he has less to prove than somebody who is actually trying to make it as a writer. I wonder if, if that's something that readers of Echo kind of consciously or unconsciously identify in his writing. That, that could be. I, I definitely, as a reader, I'm, I love the feeling of being pulled along by something I can tell is sort of over my head mm-hmm. and I'm doing my best to kind of doggy paddle along the, the current, you know, I mean, I, I, do you I, want to read the name of the Rose postscript? Oh, uh, sure. I mean, there's, yeah. So he, um, actually, you know, to what, to your point about him, not necessarily having anything to prove, I think you're right in a certain way, but when you read the postscript to the name of the Rose, which is sometimes goes under the title reflections on the name of the Rose and is, uh, included, I think, at the end of most editions of The Name of the Rose that you can currently buy. It's an amazing read, a really, really great read, and goes into his process. And he talks about just actually writing the book, and he it does reveal that he did care a lot. <laughs> he definitely started with a lot of insecurity about whether he was capable of writing fiction, given he, you know, he was already 48 years old when he wrote that book. So he'd had an entire career mm-hmm. of, of nonfiction. Uh, but he's definitely concerned much more with the larger structure than he is with the word. He sort of, there's one thing he mentions in there that in, in poetry, the, the story flows from the word, whereas in the novel, the word flows from the story. And I I don't think all novelists would agree with that, but, but it makes sense when you read his, his, uh, his work. But anyway, on, on this note of sort of, uh, lack of concern for being able to sort of bring everyone along in equal measure. He writes, after reading the manuscript, my friends and editors suggested I abbreviate the first hundred pages, which they found very difficult and demanding without thinking twice. I refused because as I insisted, if someone wanted to enter the Abbey and live there for seven days, he had to accept the Abbey's own pace. If he could not, he would never manage to read the whole book. Therefore, those first hundred pages are like a penance or an initiation. And if someone does not like them, so much the worse for him. He can stay at the foot of the hill. There's another thing that was just so, so good. I never thought of how up. Catholic that oh, was yeah. until just now. The, ca- just the, the penance way, for reading yeah. the book. Jesus yes. Christ. He is a, he is a, he was a non-religious Catholic, which is along with non-religious Jews, like my favorite mm-hmm. category of Is that because you, you would count yourself... Yes, I am. Group. I am a non-religious Catholic. I don't. I don't ascribe to the actual dogma of Catholicism, but I find certain tenets of Catholic thought to be extremely interesting, and I feel the same way about about Judaism. Uh, interesting. And anyway, whatever. That's beyond the scope of this podcast. But there, there's another passage that I think is interesting to read in the in the context of you sort of mentioning how you think about reading this, and I think it it shows how much he did still care about trying to construct a good novel, but I think you're probably right that he thinks about it differently than some novelists do. So there's a, there's a great passage also where he talks about um, constructing a story and he talks about one of the characters in his book and in the name of the Rose. And he has this, I think a really great um, point that he makes. He says um, he has this character, this, this blind librarian in the book, very, very clearly an homage to uh, Borges, the sort of postmodern author who many people have drawn comparisons to with Echo and who Echo is strongly influenced by. 
And he talks about something that happens with this character in the novel. And he says, you know, I, I didn't get know this when I, when I created the, the character, he acted on his own, so to speak. And it must not be thought that this is an idealistic position, as though I were saying that the characters have an autonomous life and the author in a kind of trance makes them behave as they themselves direct him. That kind of nonsense belongs in term papers. <laughs> the fact is that the characters are obliged to act according to the laws of the world in which they live. In other words, the narrator is the prisoner of his own premises. And I, I love that. I love the way that he sort of cuts through the sort of sanctimonious thing you hear from, I think, a lot of authors who say things like, oh, the characters just told me what, you know, I, oh, they just had their own life. And I just wrote down what happened to them in my brain. And, and I love that he's saying, no, that's not what's happening. <laughs> You've set up rules of the world. And if you follow them logically, you realize, okay, this is what happens. But it, it's what happened because you as the author created the premise in the first place, not because there's anything sort of about these characters that is actually a lot alive in some kind of way um, beyond your, your creation of them. And it, that really gets to the heart of the, of echoes, I think awareness of the human tendency to tell stories and to explain the world with stories and to sort of create these large, these larger structures that guide our actions, his awareness of the importance of that simultaneously, his awareness that those things are all constructs and that we, right. well, know, he was a professor of, of semiotics, semiotics sure. right. Yeah. Which as we've talked about before, study of the study of symbols, symbols. yeah, mm -hmm. and, and also language or just, I mean, I know that language I mean, I is a symbol, these are all, right. I mean, I think the point is that those things are all related, right? So it makes sense that somebody who has spent a lifetime thinking about language and how in symbols and how we tell stories would be so great with words and, and putting them together into a compelling structure. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that people in a way that I think is very different than most, how most novels yes, write. Right. Um, for sure. Syncratic and kind of odd, but it, at the same time, and I, I hope that listeners who have never read anything by echo and, you know, hearing this, hilarious name of the rose postscript where he very straightforwardly says yes the first 100 pages are meant to be right. kind of difficult to get through i hope that people are not necessarily turned off from reading echo because while his his books are very intelligent and don't dense dense and, and don't speak down to the reader he still has a gift for language, which is even more incredible when you think about the fact that at least you and I have only ever read his novels in translation. Right. So he yeah. writes in Italian and, and we're reading them in English and they still have this like magnetic, I think you mentioned before, poll where even I, I can distinctly remember in, in several of his novels that I've read, there are moments where I didn't understand exactly everything that was happening in, in the book, but I, I still felt compelled to just read page after page. It was like I was being pulled <laughs> by a current that I didn't quite understand, but, but was completely ready to let take me away. And there are, again, not many authors who can do that successfully without coming across as like they're trying too hard to sure. impress you. And I mean, to be fair, credit for that should also be shared with uh, William oh, Weaver, sure. who was Echo's longtime mm -hmm. uh, English translator who worked 
worked closely with Echo on these uh, on these books from the name of the Rose up through, I believe, the mysterious flame of Queen Lona. After which Weaver was sort of too old to continue translating, and and um, but he translated most of Echo's work and obviously just did a beautiful job of it. Yeah. And there, there's a really, really, really wonderful interview you should read by William Weaver uh, in the Paris Review. If you search for William Weaver Paris Review, you'll find the article. It's The Art of Translation, number three, presumably one of a series they did with translators. And it's really excellent and, and is a great, it's great for both learning about Weaver and his interesting life and his process, but also he shares story stories of echo and the other mm-hmm. translators. There are other authors he translated, including Italo Calvino. Um, so do we want to share a couple stories about echo from our own lives? Sure. There's actually something interesting that occurred to me just today. You have a copy of the name of the Rose. That was your grandfather's. We both have um, Italian-American grandparents, or, or Italian, I guess, actually. I mean, yeah, grandfathers. Gra- well, okay. Well, my, my grandfather my grandfather. Italian, but okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you have his copy of the book, the the first edition of the of the book. It's in its English edition. And your copy is great. It's like, it looks sort of ancient and the dust jacket is torn and it's a just a beautiful, a beautiful edition of the book. Um, I'm kind of curious, actually why you have why why do you have that did you ask him for it or so when i my so my grandfather died when i was in high school Mm -hmm. um so i i knew him but not as an adult right um and so my my memories of him are, are kind of childish but what i do remember is that he was a very big reader and read it could read in several languages and really enjoyed Umberto Eco, I think, because of this Italian yeah. relationship. And and I, I know that in Eco's later books he more explicitly starts writing about Italian history and I'm sure that my grandfather found something nostalgic about all of that. So not surprising that he was a fan of Echo. And my my mother, when I was in high school, before my grandfather had actually died, tried to to get me an Umberto Echo book to read because I was a a big reader and she knew that her father really liked right. this author and Italian, all all this stuff. It made sense. <laughs> and so she bought me Bottolino, which must have been his most mm. recent novel at the time. Right. And I just it's bounced off it. I couldn't do it. I, yeah. I don't even remember how even, many even pa- as an Echo fan who's read all of his novels, I guess except for his newest one, that is the toughest. Yeah. And I, I was think. I think in ninth or tenth grade. So there is no way I I just I didn't do it, but um, a couple years later he he passed away, and we were going through his things like you have to do, and just figuring out who was going to take what. And you know he there was a couple of books left over that no one had claimed yet, and I I saw the name Umberto Echo, and I thought, oh okay, I recognize that because of this right. other book. Mom says that Grandpa really liked him. I'll take it, I guess. Yep. And so I, I, I guess I was a junior in high school, and I held on to that book. I mean, I still have it, so I've had it since then. But I didn't read it or even attempt to read it until I was 25 or 26 and had met you and 
discovered that you your love for Umberto Eco and and asked you, you know, well, what should I read first? And you said Name of the Rose, and I said, great, <laughs> yeah. I happen to have a copy right here. Yeah. Um, and then very quickly went through most of his other books. I've read fewer than you have, um, but I'm I'm pretty close to reading all of them and because of all of these weird personal connections uh, through my family and through our relationship, I think that it adds to my appreciation of Umberto Eco, where at this point, I'm sure that if I read Bottolino, even if it is one of his weaker novels, I would probably still love it because it it has more meaning for me. But again, listeners who have not read Umberto Eco, who do not have weird family relationships to this Italian author should definitely at least try name of the Rose and see, see Mm -hmm. how they feel. So that's my Umberto Eco story. You have an actually funny one. Well, that's true. But I actually, the reason I asked about that in particular is because I wanted to share a, a very, very small memory. I have, it's not a story. It's merely a memory. Um, I remember as, so as a kid, I grew up, my, my parents really prized having books around the house. I remember, and we always had just lots of bookshelves with, with lots of books all around. And and that was just something that my parents thought was really important. You know, they would, they would not generally buy um, my brother and me toys. Very, I mean, they, they, they sometimes very, very infrequently, but they're all, they would always buy us a book if we wanted one. And anyway, I I remember just sort of my dad's books being sort of impenetrable and not, you know, he, my dad had just a lot of history books and biographies and things that very, you know, a certain kind of dad just has. But for whatever reason, I remember being extremely aware of his copy of The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which was like way up high on a shelf above his desk. And it was, you know, this huge it looked huge, like incredibly thick book. And I just remember being very, very taken by the name of the book and the name of the author, which see it it's, I just decided in my sort of child brain that this was some kind of ancient text. It's just, the name was so odd. I didn't like both halves of it. Umberto echo. I didn't, that just sounded like something out of like, I don't know, like some weird, historical far flung past. I mean, actually the book was translated into English one year before I was born. You know, I mean, it was barely older than I was, but I just assumed based on how it looked and what the words were and what the author's name was that it was this like impossible piece of arcana. And it turns out you were correct. Well, and the thing I love about that is that it dovetails so well into the notion of semiotics and symbols. And I was already you know, I mean, unbeknownst to myself, because I was an idiot kid who literally knew nothing about anything, but I was doing the thing that was the focus of Umberto Eco's actual academic life, which was to try to interpret things through mm-hmm. their signifiers, you so, know? And so I was bringing my like tiny, tiny, tiny amount of awareness of things like history and relics and, you know, uh, the ancient world. And like my brain was creating these dumb associations and sort of painting this whole backstory and picture to me out of just this name and title and cover art. And it's just a funny thing to think about. And I did, I didn't, I, you know, I was 20 years later until I read the, until I actually read the book and didn't think about it very much in the intervening years. 
What do you think it means symbolically now that in our book shelf we have at least two copies of every single Umberto <laughs> Echo book? Oh, Sometimes yeah. three. We have three of that one. Of yeah. Name of the Rose. Yeah. And I think we have three of Foucault's pen or maybe just two of Foucault's yeah. pendulum. Sometimes it's two hardcovers yeah. <laughs> that we have. This yeah. is what happens when two people with similar book tastes <laughs> move, in. move in together and, yeah. and feel too sentimental about right. selling their yeah, duplicate we books. all of our books, but you refused to pack your copy of The Name of the Rose because you were concerned about it being damaged. Oh, my grand... You mean my yeah. grandfather? Or concerned about losing it. Oh, okay. Yeah, but... But when we when we move, See, in- the fact that you're concerned about losing it makes me worry about the rest of our. They'll be stuff. fine. Don't worry about <laughs> okay. it. That's too yeah. uh, too okay. important. No, it's, to- fair. it's fair enough. Um, so I I do have one other story about Umberto Eco that is an actual encounter with the man. Um, I lived for two years in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and while I was living there, his novel The Prague Cemetery was released, and. To promote the book, he came to town and gave a talk, um, which was uh, presented in an in interview with the editor of Vanity Fair, whose name I can't recall. But it was a really, just a really great, engaging back and forth. I mean, Echo is always just an incredibly witty and intelligent and funny person to read an interview or to hear talk. He's just got an incredibly great energy or had and, you know, was always sort of just bubbling over with information and stories and lines to draw. Just a really, really great, really, really great speaker and just an incredible mind. And after, so that was just a great experience. And then after the talk, um, the, you know, they, they formed a, the organizers formed a line for everyone present to get a book signed if they, if they wished. And so everyone had their copy, their hardcover copies of the Prague cemetery. And we all lined up and, had him, you know, say hello and sign, sign the book and move, get on, be on our way. And so I got in line and I had my copy of the Prague Cemetery, but I also <laughs> had a copy of the Name of the Rose board game. Umberto Echo, Umberto yeah. Echo's Name <laughs> the, of the Rose yes. board game. It was the. It doesn't say Umberto Echo's. It said Umberto Echo, the Name of the Rose, mm-hmm. the board game. Mm-hmm. And it, it is it is a sort of classically European board game where you spend the whole game moving little wooden pieces around the like board and collecting resources clue and, at all no i don't think so okay because the i mean the actual Maybe, yeah. story remember, name actually. of the rose is a, a, murder, a murder mystery, mystery. Yeah. no i don't think it's 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 not really like clue it's much more of a sort of german style board game where you're you're oh like wine handler? resources and stuff fine, not, not, fine. Like, not like fine handler. but uh anyway so um it's it was a fun game actually. I played it a couple times. I I don't remember very much about it honestly, but I would play it again in honor of in honor of the, <laughs> the great man. But uh, what? Oh, that's just in honor of this great author. I will play this. Well, well I mean, finish your story, and then so, we'll decide right. if. So so I have the copy of this game, which I remember seeing in a in a board game store one time, and just sort of I was just baffled that this existed, and so I bought a copy of it, and I think it was right. At the time, I mean, I think when I got it, it was coincidentally right when he was coming to town. And so I was mm-hmm. very excited about this. And I figured, oh, okay, great. I'll bring this along and I'll get my book signed and then I'll get this game signed. And, and I will probably have the only signed copy of this game in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, I was willing to wager. And uh, another thing I thought in the back of my mind was that 
I would probably be the first person who ever presented him with this thing. And that was proven to be entirely correct, as far as I can tell, because I gave him my copy of the book and he signed it. And, you know, we exchanged a couple words in the way, this sort of perfunctory way that you do. And, and, um, and then I bring out this huge sort of three foot by three foot clattering box that says the name of the rose on it and has his name on the top of it. And I, I ask him to sign this too. And I, I, he is like taken aback. He sort of is like startled almost. And he looks at it and he just laughs. And, and then he says, I cannot design this. It is not mine. I did not make this. It is not mine. And that's that. No, no sign. No board, no board game signed for me. He was very amused, but he flatly refused out of hand. Do you still have that board game? Yeah, I do still have it. I mean, it's not signed by Umberto Eco. But, but uh, I'm just imagining a future where a possible son or grandson of yours is over at your house and sees this board game on the shelf and just develops this <laughs> childish <laughs> obsession. Oh, what what does Umberto Eco the board game mean? <laughs> anyway, get ready for that future in 40 years, yeah, pro- right, probably. Well, yeah. I've got a good story to go with it. That's true. It is, a, it is a good Umberto yeah. Echo story. One time the author wouldn't sign this. I know. It's my, it's he touched it. <laughs> he's I he bet, I bet spoken he's, a hilarious I Italian bet his voice. Hands have come in contact with maybe no other copies of that. How do you know that except. he didn't like immediately run out he to may, a board? He may have. But I, but I am honestly willing to bet. I mean, there's no way to verify this, of course, but I would be completely unsurprised if that were the only copy of that game he'd ever seen sure he he had no idea what it was <laughs> i was showing him i mean it was quite clear that when i put that thing in front of his face he was trying to figure out what it was and had absolutely no idea that's so, so funny because they made a movie out of the yeah, name of the rose he's, he's spoken about the movie before uh-huh. and he's, he's spoken about it in interviews there must have been something that his he, there must have been some rights that he didn't entirely control or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know because, or maybe if it's a board game, it they can just put whatever no, on it. They put his name and the actual name of the mm. book, and there's, the, the, it must have been maybe it's a license from licensed the movie. From somebody, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. it's the movie. I don't know. Anyway, but it says his name. It's just so uncover weird. the mystery of yeah. <laughs> the name of the rose board game. I mean, you know the 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 echo esque. Truth of that is that none of it matters and it's all made up anyway. <laughs> Wait, let's so. make up a conspiracy about what we think. Yeah. Anyway, so there are some of our our thoughts and experiences with Umberto Eco and his works. If you know, like we said, if you are interested in, uh, if you're unfamiliar with his work and you'd like to read it, um, definitely I recommend starting with the Name of the Rose. I think it's a really really great novel, and um, it concludes with. The postscript to the name of the rose, which I think is also just a really great read, especially once you've read that book. Um, after that, I recommend Foucault's Pendulum, which is a little bit denser than the name of the rose. But if you're kind of if you dig his bought whole in. thing, then then I, I think it's really worth mm-hmm. pushing yourself uh, through. Um, after that, the island of the day before. You're just probably, going in order of how of his the books first three. Were. These are in order. Yes, these mm-hmm. are these first three. I'm I'm listing in published order. So the name of the rose, Foucault's Pendulum, the Island of the Day Before, which Sarah I believe is your favorite. Yes, Umberto Eco novel, and I would say his most dreamlike. Mm-hmm. And you can. It's about a character lost at sea, and I definitely reading the book, you feel mm-hmm. kind of lo- lost at sea in a sense. So you're sort of 
buoyed along this Which weird is how philosophical current. Metaphorically, you often feel reading Umberto Eco's book and yeah. books, and then literally that's what's yes, happening sure. in that one. Um, after that, I would say you can probably skip Baudolino for now. And The Mysterious Flame of Queen Lona, that is definitely sort of a strange outlier in his in his repertoire, although I think very interesting and worth reading if you like his work. But I would say after Island the Day Before, maybe read The Prague Cemetery, mm-hmm. which is his sort of page-turniest, most overtly conspiratorial uh, novel. It's 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 sort of a, almost a thriller in a way that his other books are not. Um, and then after that, um, I guess The Mysterious Flame of Queen Lona is is really nice as sort of a reflection. It's it's about an old man who can who essentially has lost much of his memory except retains all of his memories of the kind of cultural artifacts that he amassed in his life, his books, his comic books, his little scraps of magazines. Those are the things he remembers and it definitely feels like the reflection I mean the book given that very sort of literal premise feels like the reflection of an aging author who's spent a lifetime immersed in the sort of ephemera of the cultural creations of, of history. And it's, it's very touching in that way. Mm-hmm. Baudolino, if you've liked everything else, you might as well just read <laughs> just it. Just finish it off. I mean, some people really like it. Um, yeah. I should read it again I and, should and, and see how I feel about it. read it for it the first time, time. And then numero zero, his last work of fiction, um, I don't know yet because I've not yet read it. It's certainly I, his shortest definitely novel. Definitely his shortest, yeah. I'm glad yeah. that you have just recommended that people potentially read six incredibly long <laughs> yeah, and dense. I know. Anyway, have fun. If you fun. like them, you'll, you'll decide on that. Yeah, it'll so be – I mean, if if people have a similar experience to what I have once you finish Name of the Rose and if you enjoy it, it's kind of hard not to immediately want to go back – to yeah. that 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 same that voice um yeah. and style and just feel the same feelings that the name of the rose engenders yeah. so well thanks for joining us for this look at umberto echo and this appreciation of his life and work um we are as you can tell not very familiar with his nonfiction writing i mean i've read a bit of it mm-hmm. but now that i know there's going to be no more fiction to read i'll I'll have to make what seems like an even more ambitious <laughs> uh, foray into that side, that that much larger side of his his output. But um, thanks for thanks for joining us on this podcast. We'll be back in another week or two as normal with our uh, monthly book club podcast with the uh, the next episode on Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. So join us for that. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.